Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. After weeks of negotiation and with just two days to spare, President Biden has averted a first-ever U.S. default. The debt ceiling bill has been signed. So with the bill now passed, what does this mean for the Treasury? And how could it all ultimately affect the Fed and market trajectory? Yuri and Timmer, Director of Global Macro, is back with us today to unpack the recent market moves and help us understand what's happening beyond the headlines. And per usual, Yurian will do this with his popular charts. You can follow along using at Timmer Fidelity on Twitter. Yurian shares his views on the debt ceiling bill and explains to host Pamela Ritchie that Treasury drawdowns over recent weeks mean that they will be looking to replenish between $600 to $700 billion. Also, looking at the potential direction of markets, Urian notes that markets have mostly been sideways for one year now, and that COVID has thrown off a lot of the key indicators and signals traditionally used to predict the direction of markets. What's next? Stay tuned. This podcast was recorded on June 5th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy, or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Great to see you, Yurian. How are you? Nice to see you. It feels like it's been months. Oh, it's been forever. You've been on actually some big travels and there's been vacations, actually, uh, national vacations in between. So yeah. nice to see you back. Yes. Now, I just returned from a, a five-country, nine-day road, roadshow trip uh, throughout Europe, and it was it was great. Um, uh, you know, I got to hang out with some of the FIL um uh, you know, colleagues that, that you folks work with in, in Canada as well. So I went to Budapest, Vienna, Frankfurt, was at a stop in London uh, for a crypto conference where I spoke. So uh, very interesting, but I'm glad to be be back stateside. So. Yeah, it's also good to come home. Well, it's great yes. that we can have you back here on this home with us, and we're, we're glad to have you dip into these markets right after this debt ceiling deal has, in fact, been inked. Um, you told us for a long time that it, that it would pass, and uh, there you go. It did. So what do we need to know? Yeah. So, you know, how many times do you need to see the same movie before you uh, before you know what the ending is going to be? Right. So this was no exception. Uh, debt ceilings only have one answer, and that is to uh, basically build more land once you're standing on the cliff. Uh, and that's what always happens, sometimes with more drama, sometimes with less drama. So when our uh, elected uh, leaders here in the U.S. pat themselves on the back for solving this existential problem. Um, it's good to remind them that it's a problem entirely of their own making. So I'm glad they, they came to their senses. Um, and if we want to discuss, you know, the debt ceiling and its importance, really, we should be talking about the debt, uh, which, of course, is not just a U.S. issue. It is a global issue, um, and it's a very big one. Uh, but, you know, the government decides how much money to spend. The Treasury is merely a vehicle for that government to finance whatever debts result from it. So, you know, consume deficits and then not allow its Treasury to finance those deficits 
makes absolutely zero sense. But it's political theater, and I'm glad that it's over. Uh, but there are some specific repercussions, of course. And if we go to slide six, uh, the biggest one, of course, is in the plumbing of the markets. And that is with regard to liquidity. Um, and so, you know, if we think about the markets last year, of course, the stock market fell 28% from early January until the middle of October. And of course, quantitative tightening was part of that story, the Fed shrinking its balance sheet. But from October until now, that, sh that, that liquidity drain, which is an important, you know, vehicle yeah. by which the Fed can tighten policy, got offset by reverse repos because essentially money market funds were lending money to the Fed. And that is a kind of one offset. And the other one is the TGA account, the Treasury General account, which is essentially the Treasury's cash account at the Fed. And as the Treasury was drawing down in recent weeks this cash account, it's considered a form of liquidity injection. I mean, it's kind of theoretical, uh, but that's that's generally the the thinking here. So the ramifications of now the debt ceiling getting passed, which means that uh, the Treasury no longer has to go through these extraordinary measures to find cash to pay bills that it otherwise could pay by issuing debt. Now the Treasury can issue debt, and it's actually going to issue a lot more debt than it needs to in order to replenish this this TGA account. So it's going to issue about 1.2 to 1.4 trillion dollars of T-bills, which money market funds will gladly buy because that way they don't have to use the reverse repo um, account. Um, and the, and but the Treasury will will replenish the TGA, which is down to maybe 20 or 30 billion. And of two years ago, it was at almost two trillion dollars. So the Treasury will now replenish that to back about six, six or 700 billion. And so the thinking is that as the Fed continues QT, um, reverse repos become less of a factor because T-bills are being issued and the Treasury is going to replenish its account. All of that is going to drag this purple line significantly lower. And so ironically, when everyone is cheering, uh, you know, the debt ceiling being passed, the plumbing side actually now turns more negative purely from this liquidity perspective. Um, the only caveat I would say about this is that this is something that literally everybody knows is going to happen. So, you know, does that still then have the same effect, right? If if a recession comes that everyone's been expected, will it have the same effect on the economy? And the same thing might be happening here, but certainly it's the big thing to watch in the coming weeks as the Treasury starts issuing a, a, a ton of debt. I mean, so so what does that ultimately mean? I mean, we've got interest rates high, so the, the liquidity discussion is there because of that. So we've had some bank failures. Um, how much further of a tightening of the belts does this represent? I mean, the, the way to think about this is that the tightening that was in place most of last year, not through rate hikes, because those have continued, um, you know, uh, at pace, but in terms of the liquidity from a tightening, from a quantitative tightening, that whole process got put on hold from October until now as the, the Treasury started, you know, draining this cash account. So in a way, the negative impulse from that draining liquidity is now going to resume. And so, like, certainly the glass half empty uh, way of thinking about this is that 
whatever was in place until last October, which of course was a negative drain of liquidity that brought the markets down, is now going to resume uh, yeah. for a number of months to come. Again, it's never that simple, right? I mean, it just isn't that simple because everyone probably knew that a debt ceiling deal was going to happen. And so anyone who was going to sell in anticipation of that probably would have done so. But again, when you look at the bifurcation in the market, and we know what the mega caps are doing. It's sort of AI all the time. Uh, but the rest of the market is sort of languishing towards the middle of the range or the bottom of the range. And those would be the stocks, I think, that are most affected by this draining of liquidity. You know, think about banks, small caps, more economically sensitive stocks like the meme stocks or the non-profitable growth that are just plays on liquidity. So in any, if anything, it may create an even more bifurcated market in the coming months. That's so interesting. OK, so so let's actually look at that piece of it and tell us what history, you know, we've got there's lots of discussions about one very large phone maker at the moment, um, for instance, when it hits these different levels and, you know, and then the market does terrible things afterwards. And we're looking at pieces of history and correlations and it's history working really well. Is it having a bit of a hiccup right now? What, what yeah, do you make of it, it all? It's not working very well. And that's, uh, let's run through about four slides. We're so starting with slide one. For us, that slide is the market cycle, S&P 500 total return tweeted on June 5th. And again, that's at Timmer Fidelity on Twitter. And I think at the end of the day, we can probably still blame COVID for all of this oh, because good. the last the Wait. last three years have so distorted everything in the markets, right? That remember, I mean, we've talked about this since March 2020, that fiscal monetary impulse, you know, the likes which we have not seen since World War II, and then, you know, the, the Fed pushing rates so far down, uh, creating moral hazard by basically pushing the banks to take the, the deposits that come from the excess reserves that comes from all the QE. Um, and then the banks are basically forced to invest those deposits in bonds that are at ridiculously low yield levels. And then the Fed slams on the brakes. Um, you know, the Fed's like the chief arsonist and chief firefighter, right? So it, it creates this fire and then it puts it out in record speed. And all of a sudden these banks are now sitting on losses. And it all kind of is the same cycle coming around and going around. Um, so I, my, my fear, or it's not a fear, but my sense is that uh, we are all used to looking for certain indicators to say, okay, you know, the coast is clear, the recession has come, it's created these outcomes, and therefore we now can look towards the next, you know, expansion. Uh, my, 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 my sense is that we're not going to get those easy signals because there are so many cross currents. And so let me, let me show you what I mean. So this is just, um, the S&P 500 total return, uh, assuming that the October low was the low. And that's been more or less my assumption for a while. My, my, my outlook has been that the low is probably in but the ingredients for the next bull market are not yet in place. So that's why we've been in this period of limbo. Markets basically have been going sideways for a year now. Uh, but you look at the S&P, that looks like a nice bottoming pattern, right? That That's a very symmetrical head and shoulders bottom, or it looks like one of those emojis where you hold up your shoulders. Um, and it shows that the market looks like it's bottoming. But now let's look at the next chart, which shows small caps, uh, the Russell 2000. 
Next will be the three market cycle charts Urian tweeted on June 6th, starting with U.S. small caps. That's in the subheading. You know, it's, it can't get out of its own way. It's still basically sitting at the lows of the range. And if we go to the next chart, which is the relative of small caps versus large caps, um, you know, this is not what you normally would see in an early cycle bull market. Although it is ironic uh, that the only other cycle that looks like this is 1998, which was the start of this, you know, big tech bubble uh, situation where it was a handful of mega cap growers. So it is interesting to note the, the similarity there. But if we go to the one more slide, just slide four, you can see that fresh new bull markets usually follow a big washout. Uh, as normally the Fed is raising rates and then after that the economy dives into a recession and that wipes out earnings and you get this flush where the earnings estimates get revised down and the market kind of derates and then the most economically sensitive stocks uh, really, really get hammered and you get one of those V-shaped recoveries or V-shaped bottoms that we all you know, know uh, by, by studying history. And by definition, when you get that, the other side of the V, that recovery, it's those cats and dogs that fell the most that come back the most, right? Because by then the Fed is easing. Earnings are probably still following, following, but the Fed is then easing so that the promise of easier money then kind of allows the market to look past this earnings um, valley or, or abyss. Uh, so the fact that we are appearing to make a bottom but it's not supported by small caps, neither on an absolute or a relative basis. To me, it's like it really prevents me from saying, OK, we're we're all clear here. And that's why I think this market is still very bifurcated. Maybe the ingredients are still not in place for a bull market and maybe we still stay in limbo. But, you know, having said that, we've been doing this for almost a year now and that's a long time. And the market does tend to declare itself. Uh, at some point, you know, once you're into kind of the nine to 12 month stage. Next up is Anatomy of a Correction, tweeted on June 5th. I'll show just one more slide. Uh, it, I'm showing essentially what I just showed, but on a daily chart. And here you can see again the juxtaposition of small, small caps in orange, large caps, the S&P in black. And it is a, a tale of, of two markets. And, and maybe that's what it will remain, right? Maybe the average that we're looking at, this sort of limbo or, or purgatory that the market's been in, um, maybe that's just what we're going to have. But underneath it, there's going to be winners and losers, as there always are, of course. But maybe we're not going to get the signs that we're used to having um, until maybe the actual recession actually happens, which supposedly is still coming, but I think a lot of people are getting impatient waiting for it. Yeah, yeah. It's nice to think that people get impatient and want just want to be optimistic. I think that's sort of a, <laughs> a nice piece of the human nature story. Um, well, and, also, and also remember that the market generally trends higher, right? So it's not like your baseline is a flat line. Your baseline right. is up 10% per year, and the market goes up 60, 70% of the time. So when you're flat for a year, it's kind of the same as going down. I mean, it's better than going down, of course, but you are still underperforming that baseline. And the longer you go sideways, when the baseline is up 10% per year, the bigger that gap gets. And eventually it's like a, 
a magnet, you know, pulling it higher because that's the that's the the basic tendency for the market. It's fascinating. What what has so if we speak of catalysts, for instance, if we walked into the beginning of this year, China, the reopening of China was a, was meant to be a big catalyst. It actually did pretty well for European equities over the course of the last several months. Um, but but many are saying, looking at the numbers, the economy isn't in fabulous shape, considering the fact that we were expecting this big reopening. Um, what, what does that represent in sort of the catalyst area of sparking markets? I think generally there is a sense that the Chinese reopen trade, I mean, it's happening and China is reopening, um, but that it's didn't have as much oomph as maybe people expected. And and I think that just shows that the economy there is more mature. It is not as um, as commodity sensitive, right? They're, 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 eventually you run out of buildings and ports and airports to build. And so it just, I think it shows that it's more of a consumption economy now, more of a mature economy. And we're not gonna see those signs like we did in 2009 after the financial crisis where you know, China stimulated and boy, everybody felt that because all of a sudden the price of copper and oil went went through the roof. I mean, but we're not going to see that anymore, but it is happening. But, you know, China has a debt problem that is equal to worse and maybe much worse than we see on, on this side of the, the the hemisphere. And so they're not immune from, from the laws of gravity, uh, which is that, you know, if you borrow too much and develop too much and you have too much property, uh, eventually you start pushing on a string, just like the U.S. has done uh, until COVID when it was that combination of fiscal and monetary. But uh, China is learning the same lessons that the Western world uh, already has already learned the hard way. Yeah, it's fascinating. In terms, just going back to sort of the discussion of valuations, earnings, where things are, you, you spoke a lot about small caps. Um, but in certain areas, obviously, valuations are quite high. And, and there seems to have been, as you said, this perhaps an impatience um, with waiting for something to turn higher in other parts of the market. Is, is there a removal of the so-called equity risk premium? Are people seeing things as less risky? Markets always look ahead. They always discount the future. They don't always do it correctly, right? Uh, but they always are looking ahead. I mean, that's what, and we had this conversation three years ago when the market post the, the COVID uh, bottom came roaring back and it really didn't make any sense to a lot of people un, until you, you know, understand that markets, you know, anticipate and they anticipated correctly uh, as it turned out. Uh, and the market is now anticipating again. And what typically will happen is earnings will slow, as certainly has been the case over the past you know, year and a half. And um, and the market anticipates and, you know, if the Fed is raising rates, which is typically why earnings are slowing, the P.E. will get derated, which, of course, happened uh, during this cycle. And you can see the magnitude of that derating 33 percent year over year is the worst in several decades. It was even worse than in 2008. Um, but then comes the point where the market starts looking past the earnings valley, and that's exactly what it's doing. And it could be completely incorrect. It could be that that big flush is still coming. But if you look at um, at the the data of earnings estimates, there's some kind of stealthy improvement there. But actually, if we go to slide 18, I'll show you a a a, a weekly version of that. And that would be valuation and earnings tweeted on June 8th. And you can see here on the weekly chart, 
you can see the crossover. Now, uh, when you go back to 2016, which was a very soft landing scenario, uh, or you look at uh, 2019, which of course was just before the abyss of COVID, which couldn't be have been anticipated by anyone. Uh, but you can see that that crossover uh, can happen uh, before the fundamentals even start to improve. So if we then go to slide 15, we look at the weekly earnings estimate uh, progression, which of course is a chart we've shown many times. Earnings estimate progression, which Urian tweeted on June 9th. And you can see that that orange line, the the blue, uh, the the green line, they're starting to flatten out a little bit. Not not a lot, but you know those have been. I think of them as incoming waves of a of a tide, and the waves show you know ongoing negative revisions. We see that the pink line, which was the Q1 earnings season, uh, came in well well ahead of uh, expected. Um, and so there was a big bounce there. And now the, the other estimates for the coming quarters are flattening out. And again, could be completely wrong. I mean, if all of a sudden the economy hits a wall, those estimates are going to come down. But it shows you kind of a, a behind the scenes improvement. Um, and so if we then convert that into the valuation story. We can go to slide 12. Next is equity valuation tweeted on June 8th. I've had several models uh, uh, over the last couple of years, uh, mostly related to what the Fed is doing, where the two-year yield is, which is a proxy for where the Fed's going to be once the whole cycle has come and gone, or real yields, which is also a good proxy for where the Fed is going. Um, and on the, that basis, the pink line and the blue line, market is very much overvalued. It's about four points too expensive when you compare those uh, those models to the actual PE. But if you look at the purple line, market's only modestly more than that. Uh, and the purple line is my discounted cash flow model, which uh, just uses an, uh, an average of 6% earnings growth and then uh, assumes that the market is correct by trading at the price that it is. That's how DCF models generally work. And then you can solve for the equity risk premium, which is the implied additional return that investors are expected to get from buying stocks instead of bonds. And you know, there's kind of a, a, a lazy version of that indicator, which is just to subtract the bond yield from the earnings yield, which the earnings yield is just the inverse of the PE. But the limitation to that uh, metric is that uh, that earnings that you know the earnings yield represents the next 12 months of expected earnings, and stocks, of course, are a very long duration asset. A DCF model uses five years of estimates uh, plus then a terminal value, so it it has limitations in terms of just comparing the earnings yield to the bond yield. So a DCF with some kind of base case of trend-like earnings over the very long term, I think makes more sense. But the, the bottom line of what I just said is that when you look at the rally from the October low until now, and it's been a formidable rally, at least in the large cap index, it can be explained almost entirely by the fact that the equity risk premium has gone from 5.7% to 4.4. And the horizontal line in that bottom panel is the average going back uh, I think it's like 100 years. So it's a very long-term average. And the average is around 5%. So 4.4 is below average, but it is not 
egregiously below average. Uh, um, so so the, the valuation picture is changing, uh, but it's not changing in a crazy way like what we saw in 2021 when the Fed literally created an asset bubble in everything. That's not happening today. Fascinating. Fascinating. And to see the perspective, as you say, over such a long period of time, there's piles of questions. I just want to get uh, a few of these to you. Uh, great questions. So let's let's begin with sort of I think you've spoken a lot around market breadth, so maybe an, an additional comment on that. But just also, if you can sort of, here's one on emerging markets. So so what is the call emerging? We've got the dollar off a bit today. We've got oil up a bit. We've got gold up a bit. Where, where do you see the dollar in emerging markets? Maybe a comment on market breadth. Let's now look at the global earnings cycle, which was last tweeted back on May 8th. I'm still bullish on emerging markets, um, um, and I think that not just for Sorry, that include Canada. Um, if if you, I, I, you know, Canada has historically, I would never call Canada an emerging market. I know. Uh, but in many ways, they're a lot more mature than the U.S. Uh, than the Americans are, um, but it has historically benefited from uh, EM booms because of, you know, the commodity aspect of, of the economy and then therefore the currency. So I would call it a commodity currency, at least partially so, not as much as a Brazil maybe, but, uh, but anyway, um, so I am still bullish on EM. I do think that the U.S. dollar has more downside than upside. I mean, not in a, you know, like a, 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 an extravagant de-dollarization collapse. I'm not, I'm not in that bulk, uh, in that, in that camp at all. Uh, but I do think the dollar has more downside than upside just because it has rallied a lot on the basis of this policy divergence where the U.S. has really ramped up, uh, policy rates much more than the rest of the world. I mean, Bank of Canada, Bank of England have been closer to the, uh, the U.S., but ECB is far behind. And of course, Bank of Japan and, the People's Bank of China have been leaning in the other direction. So as the Fed does get closer to the end, which I do think it's getting, then I think some of the pressure can can come off the dollar, allowing the dollar to fall. And in the meantime, we have this valuation, uh, this earnings picture. This is the global earnings cycle. And you can see the, the, the divergence in how little China participated in the upswing back in 2021 and how relatively stable it is now, and not just China, but EM in general as well, even though the U.S. is still falling. And so you see a divergence here in the global earnings picture at the same time that you have a pretty big valuation gap, right? So the U.S. is at 18.9 times expected earnings. Uh, Europe, Japan, EM, China are all trading around 12 to 13. And that on its own is not enough to cause a rally because, you know, you can get valuation value traps and things like that. But if you have a divergence in the earnings cycle and you have a weaker dollar and you have the valuation uh, gap, uh, those can become amplifiers. So I do think over the next, you know, three to five years, uh, this, this is a, a good place to be. Fascinating. Okay. Um, here's the question. Do you see a double dip bottom this fall? So coming up towards the end of this year? Um, that's a good question. I, I, I don't know. If, if you look at the, at the, at the market, uh, and I'm trying to think of a good chart to show here. If we go to slide 11, uh, you can argue that we've already had the whole market cycle 
but it, it's just not visible because it's happening in different segments of the market, right? So obviously last year when we had that derating as the Fed raised rates from zero to five, basically everything went down. The market went down 28% in the US. The PE ratio went down 33%. So that was pretty uniform. But since October, obviously the big caps, the growth names have done very well, especially in the last uh, month or two. Let's take a look at microcaps tweeted on May 23rd. But smaller caps have languished. This is the microcap index. So that's the bottom 1000 stocks of the Russell 2000. And if you look at the and you can see that the, the, the top panel that that index has gone absolutely nowhere. Right. And it's barely hanging on to the lows. And so maybe there is that other flush coming maybe in the second half of the year when the recession does actually happen and maybe earnings get downgraded. So it's an entirely plausible, if not the most likely event. Uh, but at the same time, if you look at the relative line, which is the, the purple line at the bottom, you know, the last month or two or two months, uh, you know, that's been that's kind of crashed right there. Right. And part of that is the banks, of course, uh, the regional bank headlines from early March. So if you look hard enough, you can argue that we've had that double dip already. Um, and so that's what I was saying earlier in our in our chat, that this is a really tough cycle to pin down because it really is. There's an old saying in Wall Street that it's a market of stocks, not a stock market. And that certainly is is the case for this cycle. Yeah, fascinating. Hugo Lavalle likes to likes to say that we're going to be speaking to him in the next few days. Let me just see if we can just get this final question in briefly. So this this is a question on the rates. This is the rate story. Do you see, in fact, um, a cut by year end? I think by year end, I, it could happen. I think you know the Fed will probably go uh, and raise rates again, maybe one more time. Although my sense is that you know they've gone from zero to five and a quarter in record time. Going to five and a half is going to accomplish nothing, right? The Fed is now comfortably above the neutral zone. If neutral is, let's say, three to four, um, that would be a neutral policy. The Fed is now above five. So the Fed is restrictive enough that it can kind of afford to take a pause and to just see what the effects are of all the stuff that they've already done, right? They couldn't really take that liberty when they were only at three or four when four was neutral because they were not even restrictive yet. And so they had more wood to chop, no matter what the data would say. They they had to do more tightening. Now that they are above the neutral zone into the restrictive zone, I think they can afford to wait. And but in the meantime, you know, we have this weird um, uh, uh, paradox where the forward curve and I don't have the chart this week suggests an imminent rate cut that will continue for the next several years all the way back to 3%. But at the same time, you have the commitment of traders data that shows what speculators are doing in two-year notes in the futures market. And that's a record short. So I don't know which one to believe, but the market seems to be still betting that the Fed is going to raise rates more. And at some point, the Fed uh, will stop um, and maybe even give back some of those rate hikes, not as an easing cycle, it will never call it that, but as a way to kind of say, okay, we don't need to be this far above neutral anymore. We can be closer to neutral. And by that time, that would mean giving back, you know, 50 basis points or something like that. 
But I think that's a later this year, early next year story. Golly, it's great to have you back. Thank you so much, Yurian. Good to see you and uh, we'll, see, we'll see you next week. Great, good to see you. All the best. Thank you for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash howtobuy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you. See you next time.